0: Um, I told you how that Romans chapter six, seven, and eight are really the practical cha- or the, really the doctrinal chapter. Excuse me, the, that for you and for me, we call them the great death chapters, not because anybody dies in it, but uh, but in relationship to uh, certain things. Uh, we now, once we're in Christ, we're dead to the things of this world, and in each chapter it deals with a different aspect. And we we saw in chapter six how that we're dead to the flesh. And in chapter 7, we see how we're looking at how we're dead to the law. And really, chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, they all go together. And as you kind of lay it out and get it, and that's what we're trying to do to help you get a better uh, handle on the book of Romans. The book of Romans is one of the books that you, uh, as far as, you know, understanding who you are in Christ and what God has for you and getting the right doctrine the book of Romans is absolutely key in, in getting it. Last week, remember, I showed you, we, we started chapter 7, and I showed you a great illustration of uh, a man and a woman married under the Old Testament law, how that the man was a type of your, of your flesh and the woman was a type of your soul, and how that they were cut loose uh, at the time of you got saved, your flesh and your soul, and now you're free to marry another, which is Christ. And it was a great example. And, and to me, <coughs> that's exactly... What God does through the Holy Spirit of God to help us understand uh, tough passages, He'll give you a practical illustration that you can really grasp, and then you just kind of take it from there and, and 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 make the application to it. I told you last week how that every book of the Bible has a natural division to it. It's really the key to understanding the Bible. I remember years ago when I was you know trying to learn get a handle on the Bible myself, you know I came across that great truth, and I I probably spent eight or nine years. <coughs> going through each book of the Bible and and, and finding those natural divisions and uh, it really was the key to help me understand the Bible and it's certainly the key for you understanding it what God has done you know the Bible looks like a very intimidating book <clears throat> and it's like anything until you get you understand how it breaks itself down and you find the natural biblical outline you know uh, that's where the real key of coming in to see how it lays itself out got to be able to put it into the natural breakdowns that God writes into His own book. Like when we talked about the book of Romans, I told you last week and when we started the book of Romans, how Romans looked like a very intimidating book, but if you just break it down into four sections, if you just look at the first section being the historical section, the second section being the doctrinal section, the third section being a prophetical section, and the last section... Fourth section being a, a practical section where you, you it, it's just that simple. Once you take that book and you break it down into those four areas, then you can take each section and study it and you'll see that they break down. But it, it's just a simple way of breaking down the Word of God that you can grasp it. Uh, each book of the Bible does that. I've never found a book of the Bible that didn't have a natural outline, a natural breakdown. And that's because each book of the Bible has a specific purpose. It has a specific theme. And breaking it down and understanding the breakdowns is what how you learn it we 're coming through we 're coming through each book of the Bible you know I know we haven 't done 1 Samuel yet, but i 've got a lot of things people are doing right now, and i don 't want to just crowd the issue with things with, with to give you something more to do we 'll get back to that after we get through some of the specialized classes that we have I think that Trying to teach you the Bible and going through the books of the Bible at the, sac- at the sacrifice of not helping you grasp the, your own personal relationship with God is not a very good thing to do. So we're going to hold on First Samuel for a while, not too long, and then we're going to get some of this other stuff done, and after the first of the year, then we'll jump back into First Samuel. We've been coming through every book of the Bible. What I've been doing in those books is showing you the natural breakdowns. They're absolutely key you're going to find that not only do the books of the Bible do it, but the chapters do it many, many times. Uh, Each chapter lays itself out through a natural division. Sometimes uh, uh, it'll be done by the paragraph marks in the the Bible. Sometimes it'll be done by subject matter. Romans chapter 7 is a good example of that because if you want to understand Romans chapter 7, uh, this chapter itself breaks down into three sections. And I want to give you those three sections so you can Put them in your Bible, and next time you read it or study it, you'll have it there. First section is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We studied this last week, and we saw that that is uh, kind of a ties into what chapter 5 and 6 does. And chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is that illustrative story uh, of the law and how uh, it has no more effect on you. And He did that through giving you the story of the woman and the man that were married under the law. And as long as she, He was alive, she couldn't be free to marry another. But when she was dead, then she was free. And then we saw how that, the fact that, that illustrates the fact that before you and I were saved, we were stuck to the law of sin and death. And when we got saved, God separated us, made our flesh dead, and now we're free to marry another one. So that's section one. Section two is what we're going to look at today. Section 2 is going to pick it up in verse 7 and run up to about verse 22. And uh, the second section is going to be the, the main issue. And this is really what the chapter is focusing on. And this is, this is really, uh, uh, it's very simple here. It's, uh, it's just dealing with the fact that uh, I'm dead in this flesh. Uh, there's a key phrase I want you to learn, and I want you to keep it with you. And I use it, I learned it years and years and years ago. Somebody used it in a message, and I've never forgotten it. And it really is the theme of, of Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 22. And it, 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 it's just this, this. Now that you're saved, you're no longer stuck to your flesh. Hence, the key word is stuck to your flesh. Now that you're saved, you're no longer stuck to your flesh. We know now how you were separated out the moment you got saved. You're not stuck to your flesh, but you're still stuck with your flesh. If you can remember that little phrase, It'll help you in everything that we're going to study down through Romans chapter 7 and put together what we've already looked at in Romans chapter 6. And this is where our battle is every day. This is where we struggle. This is where every child of God, everybody who's saved, this is where we have to do battle (coughs) with our own flesh and the problems that we deal with. And this is where, as we learned in Romans chapter 6, that you and I have to learn how to reckon ourselves dead to our flesh it really has no more control over us. But we many times don't understand, and this is why Romans is so important, we don't understand the aspect of how we are free from it, so we still let it, it, still let it dominate us. Now, I likened it to a, to a kid that, that uh, when he went to school, you know, from the little kindergarten up, you know, there was a kid that was always bigger than he was, and he always bullied him. And, uh, you know, every time the kid turned around, the the bigger kid was taking his lunch money or pushing him down or making fun of him out on the playground, you know. But in the process of time, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, it it all, the the little kid began to grow up. And one day, he realized that, you know what, he was strong, just as strong or stronger than the bully. And he was tired being pushed around. So that day when the bully came up to take his lunch money and pushed him down, he hauled off and knocked him right in the face and knocked him over some tables and down he went and the bully never bothered him again. That's my point. Your flesh is going to bully you wherever you go. And one of these days, if you stay in the Bible, you keep growing, you're going to stand up to it and you're going to haul off and punch it right in his face and you're going to knock it out of your life, and you're going to realize that now you spiritually have come to the place where you don't have to be bullied by your flesh anymore. And that's just where it's at. And that's how Romans chapter 7, the second section, we're going to talk about that today, works out. Then we have the third section. And the third section is verses 23 through 25. And this section deals with the fact that uh, Uh, we're looking forward now to being totally delivered from this flesh. And that's going to happen when we get our new body, our glorified body. So you have those three sections of chapter 7. Chapter 1, the first section, deals with the illustration that we looked at, telling us that we're free. The second section uh, talks about the struggle that we have. And then the third section talks about how that someday we're going to be delivered. And the third section, verses 23 through 25, lead us right into chapter 8, which is the greatest chapter in the Bible on you getting your glorified body and Christ coming and taking us out of this mess. Now these natural breakdowns, uh, basically when you get them down, they lead to a better understanding of, of the Scriptures. What it does, if you read the book of Romans or any book of the Bible, it just kind of all runs together. You don't know where to start and where to stop. You don't know when He's ending one thought and starting another. And it can be confusing. And this is why people, I believe, anyhow, this is why so many people uh, start, I believe they want to read the Bible, they start to read the Bible, but they get confused when they start reading it because they don't know what they're reading. They don't know where to start and where to stop. They They don't know what He's saying because they don't know where He ends one thought and He begins another. And the Bible can be that way. And, of course, the answer to that is to let somebody help you break it down. Somebody help me break it down. I want to help you break it down so when you read the Bible, you can read it with better understanding that keeps it from running altogether. All right, let's read Romans chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 7 and come down through verse 22 or 23. Then we'll come back and we'll, we'll make some comments on it here. <coughs> Here's what he says. What shall we say that? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of conch For without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that it is good. Now when there is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, for I know that in me, that is, my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not; but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law when then I would do good, evil is present with me; for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in the member in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin Which is in my members, Father. We ask you now to give us insight into today. Help us to take the Word of God and to to dissect it out. Help me to take this passage and break it down for these folks that they might be able to have a better understanding of this great battle that we struggle with. Lord, we've learned a lot of things from Romans, and we one of the things we should have seen by now that how that the Romans compounds itself. It builds on other on other teachings, and other ideas, and other concepts. And Lord, we've already looked at Romans chapter 6, and now we're going to build on top of that something else that ties in with that, that helps us better understand where we're at. Lord, we need You today, Holy Spirit of God, to give us what we need and help us to see and understand all the great truths that You have for us in this book. We'll thank You and praise You in Jesus' name. For our sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I'm sure that you'll also recognize that this is a passage that you know we've talked about it many many times. It's been asked on Thursday nights. We covered it in I think it was in Romans three or maybe Romans four. Uh, we went back here and it has to deal with you know your children and winning your children to Christ and the age of accountability. And this is the passage that we we go to to uh, to look at that and to see how that the fact that your child uh, is uh, under grace or God imputes no sin to that child until they reach that point in their life where they transgress the law, no good from evil, and then make the wrong choice. And obviously, we use that passage. But I need to help you understand that that's not really the main purpose of the passage. That is kind of a side benefit of the passage. Now, this is the great passage that lays out, verse by verse, our inner struggle. And I want you to remember the little phrase that I gave you just a few moments ago, all through this, and kind of make a mental note of it in your mind that you can bring it back and remember it, that we're not stuck to a dead man, but we are stuck with one. And that dead man is your flesh. It really doesn't have control over you anymore unless you allow it to. And of course, before you were saved, we were stuck to it. After we're saved, we're just stuck with it. And we've got to put up with it. And this is the great context here of these verses in chapter 7. Now, I'm going to break these verses down, and we're going to get a better understanding of them. I would suggest that if you're adamant about learning the book of Romans, that by each one of these verses, you just kind of put a little highlight of what I'm telling you here. I don't know that you can get it all in, but uh, uh, down the line. The book of Romans is a book that it probably took me 20 or 30 times to get it down. I'd I'd go through a chapter, and I'd say to myself, "Ah, I got it. And I'd put my notes in there, and i say, I got it. I finally got this chapter. A week later, I'd go back and read it, and I couldn't figure out anything I had or what it made any sense. It's one of those books that takes a while to go through. And I'm just telling you, it's, it's, it's a book that the key to it is staying with it. But I want to try to, you know, help you, uh, as I learned all through the years, maybe save you some time. I wish I'd have had somebody break it down for me as I'm trying to break it down for you, but that's, uh, it, it might help you with it. We're going to look at this thing so we can understand each verse and bid out some great truth. I'll look at verse 7 now. Here's what he says. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. Get a context. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. You know, people have weird ideas about the Old Testament Ten Commandments, or which is called the law, you know, to And uh, you find people that say their goal in life is to keep the golden rule. I've had people, you know, that I've tried to win to Christ and witness to them, and they said, Well, I'm not, you know, I've not broken into the Ten Commandments, you know, and and I try to keep the Ten Commandments and, and all of those things, or I have kept the Ten Commandments, or I observe the Ten Commandments. And of course, one of the things that that people don't understand, and and maybe you can help you define a little bit today, is that the Ten Commandments? Remember the Ten Commandments that Moses got back there in Exodus chapter twenty. The Ten Commandments, when God gave them to Moses, God never gave them for a man to keep them. God never intended that to be a a, a standard by which you would go to heaven by. We think that, you know, we you know, keep the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule, you know, do, all the other, do unto others before they get a chance to do it to you, <laughs> you know, and all that, uh, that if you keep them. The law was not given uh, to get you to heaven by keeping it. But in reality, the law was given that by the law, which was a perfect standard that no man can keep, the law was not given that you and I might try to keep it though we need to try to keep it, but you'll never keep it. The law, that was not its purpose. The law's purpose was to show you and me how far we fell short of what God expected. That's what the law was for. It wasn't given that I could keep it because nobody can keep it. You know the difference between Jesus Christ and me? The only basic difference between Jesus Christ and me is the fact that He kept the whole law and I couldn't keep it. And you know what? Somebody says, and I gave you this verse last week in James, where somebody says, well, I, I keep most of them. Bible says you can keep it all in James chapter 2, verse 10, and just break one of them, and you're guilty of them all. See? The law was not given for you and me to keep. Now, I say that, but at the same time, I say, you ought to try to live by them as best you can. I mean, there are good rules of standards of living. No question about that. But the idea of trying to keep them and keeping them is going to get you to heaven is, is, is a fallacy. Because God's original purpose was not to give them to you so you could keep them. God's original purpose was to give them to you. You would try to keep them. You would fail in keeping them. And then it would point you that you needed something else to help you. You know what the book of Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says? And now in the book of Galatians, and this is a good book. And the book of Galatians, you know, it's written in the New Testament long after, uh, you know, Christ is dead, been buried, and rose again. Paul writes the, to the church of Galatia on one of his missionary trips. He starts that church. And he writes the book of Galatians because after he left, some people had come in. And they had started to teach these New Testament Christians that, oh, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to keep the law. See? It would be a lot like somebody coming in here and standing behind this pulpit and saying, well, well, Bob is right when he says that uh, you have to believe that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. No question about that. But you can't ignore the law. You've got to believe in Jesus Christ, and you also got to try to keep the commandments of God. See? Now, that's, that was what they were teaching. And in that book, Paul is dealing with them, and he's saying, hey, you guys have been bewitched. Somebody's come in here and, and began to change the gospel. And he says, you don't understand. And he says this in Galatians chapter 4 here, 3 verse 24. He says, the law was not given to you to keep, but he makes a great parallel here. He says, the law, the Old Testament law is your schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. What does that mean? What does your school teacher do for you? Well, in many of our cases, not much. (laughs) Not so much on their part, but on our part. I think a teacher is the greatest, next to a pastor, I think a teacher is the greatest profession in the world. I think they're under, underpaid, I think they're under, I, I think they're under, uh, you know, nobody ever thanks them, uh, I think they're, they, they do more, I mean, let's face it, we couldn't read, we couldn't write, we couldn't do most of the things we do if somebody wouldn't have given up their life, who probably could have made a lot more money doing something else, but because they were dedicated to teaching and giving you what you needed to have, we can function today. We can function today. And what the law did as a schoolmaster, schoolmaster would stand up there and teach you what you need to know to point you toward an education. They would basically form the basic foundations in grammar school that you get into junior high, that you get into high school, and then you get on to college. But it all starts with a schoolmaster, somebody that is a teacher, bringing you to the point, showing you what you need to do, showing you what's right, showing you what's wrong, and showing you where your deficiencies are. You know why they have parent-teachers meetings? I know why you think they have them, so your teacher can rat on you, say, no. The reason why they do that is because a teacher is concerned about your learning abilities. And he has observed you, or she has observed you now, and what they want to do with your parents is guarantee that you get everything out of what your parents are paying for through their taxes in the school system. So they sit down with your parents and they say, she's doing really well in this. She's doing pretty good in this. Not doing very well in this. He's doing terrible in this. He's doing pretty well in this. He just doesn't apply himself. He daydreams. He he doesn't pay attention. She has a short attention span. She doesn't turn in her homework on time. Now, we look at that as being ratted out. The teacher looks at that as showing your deficiencies. That's what the law does. When your teacher sits down with your parents and says, Bob is a great kid, but here's where he falls short based on the standard that we have of teaching. The law says, Bob thinks he's a great guy, but he falls short of what God expected because he can't even approach the law to be able to keep it. That's how important it is. Now, what he's saying in verse 7, or should I say the point he's trying to make, he's trying to say this, and this is what you want to understand about verse 7. He's saying, Because the law showed me that I was a sinner, that doesn't make the law a sinful thing. See what he's saying? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? See, what he's saying is just because the law because the law tells me I'm a sinner, it doesn't mean that the law is sinful. Just the opposite. The law is perfect. The law was holy. You see, the law is not sin, but rather the law reveals my sin. See? Your school teacher wasn't a bad person. She just revealed to your parents what your deficiencies were. So when he talks about the law, he likens the law to a schoolmaster. Someone who sits down and teaches you, but also points out your deficiencies. There's no sin in the law. The thing that you need to realize is that the sin does not cause, the law does not cause you to sin. The law rather reveals our sin. And that's what he says in verse 7. He says, I had not known sin, but by the law. See? Except the law said, thou shalt not covet. In other words, the the entrance of the law reveals the deficiencies that you and I have of keeping it. Because try as we will. Try as we will. We will never be able to keep the law. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, that when Christ came down and God sent His Son, the only way that He could save us When we talk about winning somebody to Christ, the only way that you can get Christ's salvation in your life to save you is simply because He did for you and for me what we could not do ourselves. You know what He did? He kept the law. He kept the law where I could not. And Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, now look at verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me... All manner of concuspense. For without the law, sin was dead. Now, you're going to find that twice in this passage, he find, you'll find a reference to sin taking an occasion. You find it once in verse 8 and again in verse 11. And what he's basically saying here is that when, sin, when the commandment came, when you and I began to understand right from wrong, We now have knowledge of sin in our lives, and when you do that, sin will take advantage and seize the opportunity, and thereby deceiving us and spiritually killing us, making us a sinner. Now look at the word there in verse 8, rot. See that thing, that's an old English word. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, rot. Rot, rot, rot. Now that's not rot like something rotten. It's rot, the word rot there, it means formed by a work. When you rot something, it's something, it's a work. It's something that you do. And it says in there, wrought in me all manner of concuspence. Ah, there's a big $25 word. I promise you by next week I'll find out what that word means. We're just going to have to pass over it today. No. The word concuspence means evil passion. In other words, once you and I, what he's saying here is this. Once you and I came to that point in our life where we knew right from wrong, then because of the fact that we had a work going on inside us that was against God, our flesh, what happens is that it deceives us. And by it, our deception, it slays us. Because it brings out that evil passion that we all have inside of us. And this is why you can't get saved by works. You have to get saved uh, by grace. Lester Roloff, I don't know. How many know who Lester Roloff is? Oh, a few of you. Okay, good deal. Lester Roloff, he's been dead now probably 20-some years. Uh, he was a great preacher. And uh, I I used to hear him preach uh, when I was just a young guy. Uh, he I'd go to camps and be at camps. He was a great camp speaker. He ran a place down in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas for, for incorrigible kids. And uh, he had a, a farm down there where he took kids and uh, if they... Could, were incorrigible or they couldn't, you couldn't control them, that uh, you could send them down to his place and they'd try to work with them. And uh, he was an incredible guy. Uh, he was an old-time old preacher. He was definitely one of the last of the Philadelphian preachers. And uh, he preached simple messages, but they were so profound. Uh, I remember and they would have stupid little titles. But they, when you would hear them, they would, they, he would take one little thing in the Bible, and he would build a sermon around that one thing, and by the time he's done, he just devastates you. Two of the sermons I remember, The one of them I remember was titled, And the Mule Walked On. Now let me ask you a question, for you Bible theologians here. If I would say to you, he preached a message on the mule walked on, where would you say he was preaching at in the Bible? This is just a little game here. Anybody? No, 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 raise your hand. The mule walked on, yeah. No, but that, that was good. That's good. No, but that's very good. That's very good. But that's, that, that, I can see how you think that's very good. I mean, anybody want to, anybody want to tell me where the mule walked on? Yeah. Is um, that where the. Mule, the donkey speak, but... No, no, no. He didn't walk on there, he spoke. But very good. Anybody? Anybody want to, one more time? We're gonna, I don't want to waste a lot of time with that. John's got his hand up in the back. Yeah. No, no, but I, at least you're thinking where the mules are. <coughs> that's good. <coughs> I was going to ask everybody if t- after the story about the story about the camel, but I'm afraid you all pull your cigarettes out, so we won't do that one. <coughs> well, that's that thing. Remember that Thor and Rebecca when, she, you know, I had a guy, I actually preached one time back there in Genesis where I told you last week, you know, where she came in there, and, and uh, I actually had a preacher, you know, just a young guy. And it says that, you know, Isaac brought Rebecca in and she says, and then they met and she lighted off the camel. And he says, see there, there's nothing wrong with smoke. <laughs> she lighted off a camel. <laughs> not what it's saying there, but anyhow. All right, John, tell us where it's at. Where? No. Where in the Bible did the, did the mule walk on? I know it's kind of a tricky deal. I'm not trying to trap you. Remember the story of Absalom? <laughs> you got your gun with you today yeah. oh, you do okay well there's a couple of guys back there I'm not sure of. if I ask you to shoot one of them I want you to go ahead and do it <laughs> remember the story in Absalom where he's on the mule and he's running and his, he had that beautiful hair remember and he got caught in the branches by his hair remember and the mule did what walked the mule walked on see? Yeah. Oh, wow. and he, he built one of the greatest messages around that little goofy thing but that's what he did he was just an old farm boy. He never had much of an education, but boy, he loved God and knew the Bible. And one of the greatest messages I ever heard him preach was the mule walked on. He's the guy that originally preached the sermon that I preached many, many times. I don't, I never preach it to you here, but uh, he preached a message on the laughter of God. There's four types of laughter in the Bible. And he took that, and I got to tell you this. We were down at Ch- Ch- Chautauqua Christian Camp. Chautauqua was down uh, along the Ohio border, and it was a really rough town because uh, 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 river towns or, you know, river cities are always really tough. And uh, it was always a rough camp. And uh, we'd get in there, and there'd be about five, 600 teenagers in there. And we went down there one time, uh, took some people down from our church, and he was preaching tonight, and it was a rough camp. I mean, rough camp because there were some guys that, and gals, that, you, know, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't turn over to God, and it's a, it was a real spiritual battle. And the third night, which was Wednesday night, he preached a message on the laughter of God. And it was in a big tent. And while he started to preach that message, the worst thunderstorm I ever heard in my life came up. And I mean, he's up there preaching, and the lightning was crashing, and the thunder was racking, and the rain was coming down, and he's preaching up there on the laughter of God. And right in the middle of his sermon, the tent pegs blew out, And the whole tent came down on 500 kids out of that thing. And everybody screaming. Somebody had a tape of it. And you could hear the tent coming down. You could hear people screaming and yelling. And through the whole thing, you could hear old Lester Olof still hammering the point about the laughter of God. And, of course, a great revival broke out. That was one of the highlights of my life, uh, here actually being there to hear that and see that. And it was a great thing. But he used to have a message which I thought was the greatest message in an illustrative form that, that illustrated what we got in Romans chapter 7. He used to preach a message on, called Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. Anybody ever heard that message? Good, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll save that and preach it online so someplace. Here's what he'd say. He'd open the thing up and he'd talk about Dr. Law. And what he was doing, he was illustrating the difference between, like Romans chapter 7, the law in its relationship to us And then grace. And here's what he would say. I can't preach the whole message. But here's what he'd say. Dr. Law was a great doctor. And when you'd go in to see Dr. Law, Dr. Law would listen to you. he let you tell him what your problems were. And Dr. Law then would tell you. He would diagnose for you what your problem was. Dr. Law would be very specific. Dr. Law would not speak in generalities. But Dr. Law would be able to tell you what is wrong with you and every inherent detail because that was Dr. Law's job. But Dr. Law could not prescribe a medicine to fix your problem. You see, Dr. Law, all he could do was tell you what was wrong with you. Dr. Law did not have the ability to fix what was wrong with you. Once Dr. Law defined for you what your problem was, then he sent you to his associate, Dr. Grace. Dr. Grace would take you with your problem and have the solution to solve the problem that you have. But Dr. Grace could not operate without Dr. Law because where Dr. Law could diagnose the problem, Dr. Law could not fix the problem. Where Dr. Grace could fix the problem, he could not operate without the counterpart, Dr. Law, telling you what your problem was. See how it works? The law shows you what's wrong with you and I, Dr. Law. But grace is what God uses to fix what's wrong with us. See how it works? Now, those are the kind of simple sermons, simple, my foot, profound, but in simplicity, that I was raised under, see Those guys knew how to take the Bible, unlike guys that you hear today. They're just wisps of smoke. There's no no thought to it. There's no depth to it. Those old boys was able to take a passage and open that thing up and just give you more gold nuggets than you could ever carry home. Why? Because they believed the book that they were preaching, and they had a relationship with it. Dr. Law and Dr. Grace You see, the law, there's nothing wrong with the law, but it diagnosed what our problem was. But the law can't fix it, so it sends you over to Dr. Grace. And when you got saved, you didn't get saved by the works of the law. You got saved by grace through faith. But Dr. Law had to diagnose the problem, but only Dr. Grace could fix it. And oh, my friend, what a great, great illustration that was. You know what? That's the biblical format for everything in Christian life. Some of you were inspiring to work with me in in counseling and working with people. Some of you will make pretty good counselors. You're already well on your way and you get a lot of experience and we put you in a lot of scenarios and you do very well with it and you're going to get better in time at it. But the same format is here. You can't help somebody fix the problem that they got till you first have them see what the problem is. You know what I found in dealing with people? you're going to find what I call the Baptist two-step shuffle. Now, I know Baptists aren't supposed to dance. But boy, for somebody who aren't supposed to dance, there's a lot of Baptists that do a lot of dancing. Dancing around the Word of God, see? And dancing around the issues. And the bottom line is this. You're going to start dealing with people, and they, you're going to try to, you, you, before you can fix them, Before you can administer the grace to them to help them solve their problem, they've got to first identify that problem. I've told you many, many times that out of this thing right here, uh, when you're learning this, God's going to show you what issues you have in your life. Your job is to identify those issues, attack those issues, and in time, solve those issues. If you're not willing to do that and be honest about your issues... You'll never solve the problem. We see it in dealing with people. How many times has somebody come in here and had issues? And you know, when we'll sit down and talk with them, you know, and I'll put them up, work with some of you folks, and you'll take them, and you'll work with them, and you'll start to disciple them, and you'll do this, and you'll do that, and you'll help them. But the bottom line is this. They, you'd only meet with them a couple of weeks, and you start to, when you start to meet with them, you start to see the old Baptist two-step shuffle. They start to dance around the real issues. Do you know they've got an issue? They insist they don't have an issue. But that issue keeps, keeps messing them up. They're not willing to uh, diagnose what the real problem is. You know what that takes? You know what it means that when you and I stop, sit down, and look at our issues and die? You know what that really is? It's simply getting honest with yourself. It's stopping and saying, okay, I'm quit playing in games. I have this issue. And I can dance around it all day long. I can pretend I don't have it. You know what? It's, 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 it's like that, that, that Internet commercial with the two turtles. You know, when they're playing hide and seek with a guy and a girl turtle, and she's sticking her rear end, they sticking out behind the couch, and she thinks she's hiding. And he says, I can see your butt. She thinks she's hid. Now, this part is hid. And she's over there saying, I'm hiding, but the rear end is sticking out. <laughs> and what we do in our real worlds, we just think we hide, but our rear end is always sticking out. Now, you know what? That's just the way it is. You, The first thing it takes for you to get your problem solved, whatever it may be, you've got to get honest with yourself. You've got to realize that you have an issue. I would be more than happy in all the world. It would save me so much time. It would save me so much, save you much time. And I don't worry about me because I get paid for it. What bothers me is when many of you sacrifice your family time, give up this, give up that, to work with people, and all you do is you think you're going to discipleship, but in reality you're going to a dance. So it is. I just assume somebody, when you diagnose it, they say, you know what, that's my problem, but i got to be honest with you, I kind of don't want to fix it. I don't really want to do it. I know if I do it, I'll last about a week because that's just me, and so I just assume and save everybody a lot of time. But it never works that way. never works that way. No. The bottom line is, before you can fix anything in your life, this principle goes all the way through the Bible. You have to be willing to be honest with yourself and say, this is my problem, and then deal with that problem. You can't blame it on somebody else. You can't blame it on the way you were raised. You can't blame it on your parents. You can't blame it on this. I mean, obviously, things in life have an effect on us and bring us to a point. But you know what? Once you're confronted with the Bible, once you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, the Bible does say that all things become passed away, all things become new. There comes a time in your life where you've got to quit blaming on everybody else, and you've got to step up to the plate and say, No, I'm going to eat this when it's mine. Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. And of course, that's what the law does. The law shows you and I what our deficiency is. But grace is the one that solves that problem. Alright, now look at verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. It says, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, there's the second time you find it, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now, look at verse 9, and this is the verse that we use in dealing with your children. But it's also true of you and me. It says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. What does that mean? It means there was a time in your life and my life, just like if you got a little kid back there in the nursery uh, or in the elementary, and they're probably, uh, you know, still under the age of accountability, that they're alive without the law. What does that mean? It means that the, the law has, because they don't know right from wrong, they're in innocence. Now, does that mean they do everything right? no. No, no, no. Many times they do many things that are wrong, but there's no sin imputed to them because they have no knowledge in their mind that what they're doing is a breaking of God's law. In time as they grow up, they learn that, and that's what he's saying here when he says, I was alive without the law once. Right now, if you have a little baby or you have little children, or it's true in your life when you were once a little child, you were... No sin was imputed to you, but there came a time in your life you was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, see, there's going to come a day in that little baby's life, and that little child's life, where they're going to realize what is right and wrong, and then what's going to happen is sin is going to take occasion, sin is going to revive, and they're going to be dead spiritually. And the commandment, verse 10, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceive me, and by it slew me. Did you ever notice the pattern? You know, the example of this in the Bible is Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve were created, they were created with age. They weren't like little, they weren't, they didn't grow up. When God made them, He created them with the appearance of age. They were adults when He made them. He didn't make them as little children and allow them to grow up. He made them in that that format that they were already young adults or wherever they were. But they were in innocence. And when you look at that story back there, you find an exact picture and a pattern of the way you and I were before sin revived and we died. You see in their lives, before they took it a forbidden fruit, which was the commandment of God, up to that point when they broke what the law that God told them. He said, of all the trees in the garden you can freely eat except one. And that was a commandment. And they broke that commandment. And everything they did up to that point, God did not impute to them because they were in innocence. Now that's the way your child is right now. Your child is going to grow up someday. And they're going to be faced with the same decision that Adam and Eve were faced with. And they too. We'll break the law by making the wrong choice just like you and I at one point in our life was alive without the law once. But sin revived and we died when the commandment came. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> that model is a tremendous model to help understand not only where you and I were before we, we had to get saved but where your children are. You ever notice a similarity between Adam and Eve and us as little children or as your children is? You notice that both you and when Adam and Eve, when they weren't born, but when they created, when you were born, you both were naked? You realize that when Adam and Eve, after they were created, they were naked? They didn't have to have any clothes till after the fall. They walked around naked, and they were not ashamed. You ever notice your little children? you got somebody over, you know, very important, and they're in the room there playing somewhere, and next thing you know, they've taken off all their clothes, and they're marching out in the living room. Uh, You've got uh, Pastor Pyle there, you know, or or somebody over here, and and they're singing. It wouldn't be so bad if they weren't just naked, but they're singing boys and girls for Jesus, you know, as they're marching through, you know. Little kids don't care. I was out on the, years ago, I was out on the porch talking to my neighbor, and and I looked behind me, and both my girls come out, they were stark naked. (laughs) Hi, Daddy, what's going on? (laughs) You're naked, that's what's going on. They didn't care. They didn't care. You ever notice how I see you do it all the time with your kids? I did it with Mayan, you do it with yours all the time. You know what you're always telling them to do? Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. I'm going to tell you one more time. Don't touch that. Kid looks at his sister and says, one more time. That meant we got nine more time before you're going to do anything. Don't touch that. You know what God said? Don't touch that tree. Don't touch it. You ever notice how the, your kids always have, and you see this all the time. I don't care how small they are. They always got an affinity for putting things in their mouth. You notice that? I don't care what it is. Sometimes you better care what it is. They'll put anything in. You give them something, goes in their mouth. Pick up a crayon, goes in their mouth. You pick up a pencil, goes in their mouth. You take a magic marker, goes in their mouth. You give them anything, goes in their mouth. You know why? Because God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat it, you shall surely die. They had an affinity for putting things in their mouth. You ever notice when you get your kids, if you got more than one, and one of them does something wrong, you hear a bang or a crash, and you run into the room and suddenly the room is gone, everybody's in there. They have this thing to learn built into them to run and hide. You know what Adam and Eve did when they did sin and God came down? They ran and hide. Oh, they ran and hid. <laughs> And then when you finally do, catch them. Oh, it goes on with my grandkids all the time. Went on with my kids. When you do finally catch them. Well, no, Maddie did it. (laughs) Maddie? Kinsey did it. Or Otis knocked it over. (laughs) I know you think Otis is the drunk on Mayberry RFD. That's not true. Here's our little dog downstairs. Or upstairs. Yes, we have an upstairs dog and a downstairs dog. And God came to Adam and Eve, and he said to Adam, she said to Eve, she says, Eve, what'd you do? You know what Eve said? He said, the devil made me do it. She was writing lines already then for Flip Wilson. <laughs> he looked at Adam, and he says, what'd she, what, Adam, what did you do? You know what Adam said? He said, well, Lord, the woman you gave me. Now, you can use that guy down the line someplace. That comes in handy. <clears throat> you put in front of your kids... <clears throat> Meat and vegetables in one side and fruit, cherries, grapes on this side. They'll take the fruit every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. You see, the pattern of Adam and Eve in innocence. No sin imputed is just like your children right now. And like what you and I were when the Bible says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. Ah, but when the commandment came, say. Sin revived, and I died. And as a little child, I mean, your little child, you know, right now, and you know, you you may have a two-year-old from hell. You may have a child that just gets into everything. You may have a child that that uh, is just all kinds of handful, and it may be two, three, four years old. And you know, you may be certainly. I mean, when that kid sleeps at night, you're probably very carefully with him with a flashlight. You with a comb, looking under his head for that little 666 that's on there in Omen, in 1, 2, and 3, and 4. Are you sure you got the Antichrist? I'm sure you got the Antichrist. <coughs> As a little child, they may be the two-year-old kid from hell, but until they associate their actions with the breaking of the law, there's no sin imputed to them. You ever note, How many sins Eve committed long before she took the forbidden fruit? You ever catalog that? It's worth a study. One of the things that we find out that she had some kind of resentment even while God was talking with her about what God had told her because she disobeyed it. She was looking for the opportunity. So that just didn't happen. She'd been thinking that in her heart. Long before she took the forbidden fruit, she conveniently changed what God said because she didn't like it And made it say what she liked. You know something else she did? She listened to false accusations about God. And never gave God the benefit of the doubt. And then if that wasn't all. When the devil finally did show up. She coveted. She coveted. She says the devil. He says now look at this tree. It's good for food. Lust of the eyes. It'll make one wise. You'll be like the gods. Pride of life. It is pleasant to the eyes. Lust of the eyes. She was involved in all of that, but sin was not imputed to her until she broke what God told her not to do. That's your kid. That's you. I was alive without the law one. Did you do everything right? Absolutely not. Right now, you'll tell your kid, don't do that, and they'll go do it. You'll say, "Don't, don't pick that up. They'll pick it up, and then they'll break it. And then you'll say to them, now, didn't I tell you not to pick it up? Don't ever pick that up again. You know what? A week later, two weeks later, an hour later, they'll pick something else up and break it. They'll disobey you. They'll do whatever they want to do. And if you don't discipline them to the point, you're going to wind up raising somebody that's going to give you all kinds of problems. But the bottom line is, they're in innocence. And because they have not understand right from wrong, because they have not consciously Come up face to face with the law of God and conscious choice broke that law, they're still in innocence. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's what he said. That's your children, that's you and me. Of course, we're past that point. But it, 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 verse 11 says, Sin, taking the occasion, deceived me and slew me. Now, the key word here, ladies and gentlemen, is deceived. In Genesis chapter 3, you don't find the word deceived. You find the word beguiled. And beguiled is another word for deceived. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, the Bible clearly tells you that the woman Eve was deceived in the transgression. He deceived her. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, talks about the devil who who deceiveth the whole world. Luke chapter twenty one verse eighteen uh, verse eight. The Bible says, "Take heed that you be not deceived." Do you ever see how? And this is a great study in itself. Do you ever go back and do a uh, do a analysis, a situation study on how she got deceived? You know how she got deceived. It's the same way, ladies and gentlemen, you and I deceive ourselves today. Same way. You see, when that commandment comes. Sin takes the occasion of the law and the occasion of where we're at and then it deceives us. And Eve got deceived. And Eve's deception made her a sinner. There come a time in your life and my life that we were once innocent, but when we got deceived, we became sinners. And for the most part, every problem we have in our life today is nothing more than a continuation of that deception. You know why the Bible is so important? You know why I have you put those little verses on three by five cards? You know why the Bible says, Thy word have I hit in my heart, that I might not sin against thee? You know why the Bible says, Thy word is the lamp on my feet, light of my path? You know why the Bible says, "How Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? You know why the Bible says that? Because the only way to keep from being deceived is to have the word of God that you go by. You know what Eve did? She deceived herself because she thought she knew more about what God said than what God said. She was just sure God didn't mean what she said, so she changed the principle and got deceived. You know how we get into problems? Every one of us. Every one of us. You know how we get into problems? We get into problems because at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, when you've got an issue in your life and somebody tries to tell you, whether it's me, whether it's your mother, whether it's your father, whether it's some friend, you simply think that we're right and you're wrong. You think that you're the exception to the rule. You think you're going to beat the system. You think the Bible, when the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that's going to reap. That didn't apply to you. You think that you're the angle around everything that God said and you're the exception to the rule. And ladies and gentlemen, we are not the exception to the rule. We get the problem we get in our life simply, basically because the devil deceives us. You know how he deceives us? He deceives us by helping us think that God doesn't know what he's talking about. I tell people I tell people who are working with people, and you start to sit down and lay out the Word of God for them, and about a week or two weeks into it, they start telling you what's going on, forget it. If you know how to fix your problem, you don't need me. And I certainly don't need to waste my time arguing with you when I know you're wrong and the book's right. You see, that's how you got the seed guy said to me one time, he said, well, I think I ought to do this. And I said, oh, you're the expert on it now. You're 28 years old. you made every mess in your life. You've been married three times. You're upside down. You lost your job. You have absolutely nothing to do. And suddenly you're going to come here today, and you're the expert on biblical principles? You've deceived yourself. See? Deception. That's what the devil does. That's why you never go wrong with the book. Stay with the book. Stay with the book. You say, I don't like everything it says. You think I do? I don't like it. you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, "He that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet." I may not like what it says, but at the end of the day, I know what's best for me. You know, we all were growing up teenagers. you always like what your father said? Or your mother said, "When I was 17 years old, I thought my father and my mother were the dumbest people in the world. Ouch. <laughs> When I was 17, 18 years old, I thought my mom and dad were the dumbest people in the world. When I was 21, I couldn't figure out how my mom and dad got so smart in just three years. You know what? I deceived myself. I thought I knew better than they did. Didn't matter they'd been through life, World War II. Didn't matter they went through the Depression. Didn't matter they went without to make me, give me. Didn't matter that. All I saw was me. And all I saw was somebody who thought to myself, I know more about life than you did. You know what? Every young man, every young lady that gets messed up in life and goes into a disaster, tailspin starts just like that. You know why? Because when you commandment came, sin will deceive you. And a deception is not some grand deception. It's just something that you think somebody who knows more about life than you do, you know more about it than they do. How it happens. That's how it happens. You see, the law is holy. The commandment's holy. It revealed my sin, but it never caused my sin. No, no, no. I deceived myself. Now look at verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me, by that which is good, that sin, by the commandment, here it comes, might become exceedingly sinful. We talk about Christ as your own personal Savior. We had a show winning class yesterday, our last class, and I, I came down through that. And I talked to the people there about how that uh, a person has to see uh, when they get saved. They have to understand that it isn't about I want to get saved to fix my marriage. It isn't about I want to get saved so I can put my relationship back with my girlfriend. It isn't about I want to get saved so I'll find a job. It's about I need to get saved because I am a sinner. I have a personal sin debt. Your sin becomes exceedingly sinful. It's a personal thing between you and God. A sin has to appear sin. You ever notice how that word is disappeared from most churches and most pulpits and most messages? You hardly ever heard the word sin. It's shortcomings now. It's false. We all have our faults. We all have our shortcomings. Oh, we're all good people, but we all, we all just, you know, we all have the fellowship of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, and we all do this, but we all have our, we all have our shortcomings. We all have our, we all have our times where, no, no, it's just saying, it. S-I-N, sin, sin, sin. I told you before, it's been almost five years now I ever, since I've even met a sinner. I don't think there are anymore. I think they're like dinosaurs. They're gone. Nobody's a sinner anymore. Every once in a while you'll find one. You find, you, next time we find a good old-fashioned sinner, we're going to put him in a glass cage up here and just put him on here and feed him right away. Sinner. So everybody can see what one looks like. They're gone. No sin anymore. We've eradicated sin. Like a lady one time, a guy was preaching out of Revelation. And he was preaching over there, and the lady come up to him afterwards, and she says, brother, she says, uh, uh, you're talking about the devil. She says, I read back there in Revelation chapter 12 where the devil was chained. Now, you're talking about the devil being around here doing all that stuff. The Bible says the devil's chained. He says, yes, ma'am, he is, but he's on a long chain. <laughs> yeah, he's on a Long chain. Long chain. Alright, uh, look verse thirteen again. It says, "Then that which was good was made death unto me. God forbid, but sin that might it appear sin working death in me." There it is. But that which is good, the law. Why? Because the law shows you and I that we are a sinner, and we need to look at sin as becoming exceedingly sinful, personal against God, not in a generality, personal. Not in a way that we can just look at it and say, well, yes, we're not very good people. No, we're sinned against God, and that sin is against God, and there's a payment for that sin. The wages of sin is death, and you're going to have to pay it unless you get God's payment to cancel out the payment you've got to pay. All right, now look at verses 14 and 20. Now, here it comes. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, notice the parentheses there, you want to mark that, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that what I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You see, keep that thing in mind that I told you about. It's a key. After your saved, you're no longer stuck to your flesh, but you're stuck with your flesh. You're not stuck to a dead man anymore, but you're stuck with one. If you ever doubted the two natures of the believer, this passage here will settle the issue. This, without a doubt, is the greatest place in the Bible. 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 is the greatest place in the Bible that demonstrates and shows you and I the number one problem we have. The number one problem that you and I have. The number one problem that you and I deal with. Remember, you can't fix the problem till you know the problem. And this is the this text in the Bible is our struggle. And I and I and I, I got to say this. I am so glad that when God wrote this passage in here to show me how my struggle is and how day after day after day I fail and have to go through the same issues. I'm glad that God chose the Apostle Paul to write this passage. You know why? Because without a doubt, the Apostle Paul was probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. You know, sometimes we read Paul, and we study Paul, and we think what God did with him, and how God used him, and we forget that even though in all of that, he struggled with things just like you and I do. I take comfort in that. Now, that doesn't make me feel any better when I disappoint God, but the bottom line is it helps me put it into context that the greatest Christian ever lived struggled with the same things that I struggle with. He did. And verses 14 through 20 is a state of every child of God from salvation to the rapture of the church. The Christian life is a battle. I remember years and years ago when I used to hear uh, these old boys preach. And I, I heard a guy preach one time when I was about uh, uh, 20 years old. And I was just starting to put it all together. And it was at a camp again. And he got up there and he was preaching on the whole armor of God. And he said this. He said, let me tell you kids something. He said, I know you may not understand this now. But he says if you ever decide to give your life to God. And ever you ever decide that you're going to turn your life over to the Lord, and you're going to stand for that book, and you're going to do what what God wants you to do, he says, the battle you're going to get into is going to make all the battles of the world look like kids shooting marbles. He says, and I mean that. He says, so I want to preach to you out of Ephesians chapter 6 about the whole armor of God. Because I'm telling you, kid, if you ever decide to be God's man or God's woman, and you ever decide to give it all to God and turn it over to Him, and burn your bridges behind you, and give it to God, and be what God wants you to be. He says the battle you're going to get into is going to make the Battle of Bull Run, and Shatu Theri, and the Battle of the Marne, and Guadalcanal, and Saipan, and Iwo Jima, and, the, and Anzio, and Normandy look like a bunch of campfire girls sitting around roasting marshmallows. You know what? When he said that, I didn't understand what he said. I mean, I heard what he said, but I didn't have the depth to get down to what he was talking about. That was some f- almost 35 years ago in my life. Today I can stand here before you after 35 years of being on the front lines. Many times being in a foxhole by myself. Many times being out there in the forward positions and taking lead point all by myself. And I can safely say I understand everything that he was talking about then. That's the battle we're in. And we don't, I'll tell you something, the battle, the worst enemy you and I have is you and me. Like somebody said, we have met the enemy, and he is ours. Christians got up and said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. (laughs) We're the enemy. Verse 15 says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. You know what? This passage is, if it does anything at all, and it does a lot, it shows you the difference between a saved man and a lost person. It shows you that you, you, that, that you have a new nature and an old nature. A, 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 most Christians can't ever get to this. You know what 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says? It says that he that is born of God does not commit sin. Now that's one of the stellar verses in the Bible. You know what all the new Bibles, that verse has changed? It's changed from he that is born of God does not commit sin. It's changed to the, who, did, who is born of God does not practice sin. You know why it's changed? Because all the preachers and all the scholars who don't know what happened to you in the day you got saved and don't believe the Bible anymore, they realized that they still sin, And they had to come up. When you don't understand a verse... Then change the verse because don't give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And their take on it was this. And still is today. You go to most churches today, they preach on that, or most Bible studies. Here's what they'll tell you. That is a mistranslation. It doesn't say, he that is born of God does not commit sin. It says, it should say, he that is born of God does not practice sin because we know we're all saved. But the reality is we still sin. Now that's their take on it. So I don't understand that, so I'll change the word commit to the word practice, therefore fit into my little world. Well, the problem with that is, is that you're not understanding the doctrine behind it because you don't know the book of Romans. It says, he that is born of God doth not commit sin. My flesh is not born of God. So my flesh is going to continue to sin. What is born of God is me, is my soul. And when you don't understand the great doctrine of spiritual circumcision, when you don't understand how that before you were stuck together, your soul and your flesh, and God at the time of salvation separated you, sealed your soul with the Holy Spirit of God and made you perfect, your soul today cannot, will not, under any circumstances, if you're a saved man or woman, your soul cannot sin. Your flesh can. But your soul can't. You know why? Because he that is born of God does not commit sin because he is born of God. And his seed remaineth in him They because these born of God. My flesh didn't get born of God, but my soul did. And when you don't understand the separation of the two, then you walk around thinking, well, you know, then that can't be right. No, it's right. You're wrong. You're wrong because you don't understand the, great doct- the greatest doctrine of the Bible of what happened to you the day you got saved. You want to give a preacher a test and find out if he's the right guy for you or not? Just ask him one question. Sit him down, have him over for dinner, feed him first so when he runs out the door he has a full stomach. And then sit him down there and ask him one question. Tell me, what happened the very second that I got saved and you got saved that was changed a second before I got saved? Tell me the process. Take me in the Bible and show me what transpired between my soul and my flesh. He won't have a clue. And that's why when they get to that passage, they say, oh, it can't be commit, because we all commit sin. We have to change it to practice. Well, that don't work for most of the Christians I know, we like to practice it all the time. No, no, no. You've got to get it in the right context. When you got saved, your soul was sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. It was separated from your flesh. Now you are a two nature, an old nature and a new nature. That's what he's saying down here. He's saying, when I do sin, it is not me that sins. It's my flesh that sins because the real me is saved and sinless. That's why he says, for I know that in me, parentheses, that is my flesh. Well, it's no good thing. That's a great concept, folks. That's why he says, It is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And that's the way it is. There's a difference between a shaved man and an unshaved man. If that wasn't enough, look at verse 25. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Here it comes. But with the flesh, the law of sin. See the difference? So with the mind, the mind, how many times have I told you that the job of every Christian is to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-5, through casting down every imagination and every thought that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought through the obedience of Christ. This is why you're to renew your mind. This is why you're to transform your mind. Because with your mind, I myself serve the law of God. New nature. But with the flesh, the law of sin, the old nature. Then he says this, and oh, here we are. Boy, this is us. I'm just glad Paul wrote it. We're in good company. That which I do, lying, cheating, murder, lust, sacrilege, stubbornness, I allow not. For what I would... Bible reading, studying your Bible, soul winning, prayer, Sunday morning, Thursday night, dealing with people, learning to grow, learning how to build a relationship to God, that do I not. But what I hate, jealousy, pride, unforgiving, gossip, bad temper, covetousness, laziness, selfishness, that do I. That's where we're at. Now, did you notice down there, even though you're a Christian and you do those things, it says, but what I hate, you got to hate those things. You got to hate them every time you do it. You had to get so mad at yourself when you drop the ball with God because you realize the price that was paid, what God done for you, and you get so irritated at yourself because that struggle of that flesh of just always there. I mean, I'm not stuck to a dead man anymore, but boy, he is calling me, following me around, and every time I stop, he bumps into me. You know how irritating it is to go to a grocery store and be going down the thing when it's crowded and some old lady about 90 years old keeps right behind you? She won't go around you, but every time you stop, she catches you right back here with her cart. Now, if she was 20 or 30, you know, or if she was a guy, you could haul up and paste him. But it doesn't gut press for a preacher to knock down a 90-year-old lady. So what you do is you go down there and, 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 and she's looking all over the world, you know, and she can't, you know, and you try to help her, but you know what, you go out of there and you've got all your groceries, but you're bleeding from both backs of your feet. <laughs> One lady didn't tell you, we, you know, I, I told my wife, we've got to find a grocery store with shorter aisles. This thing is killing me, man. We're going down there and she's right behind me. She's looking for something, you know, and every time I stop, she'd nail me. You know how the, you know, they're designed that way. I they mean, that they're made that way. They're, you know, they're, they've got that little bar out there and she, they just catch her right here right above your shoe, right underneath your pant leg, right where you got bare skin, and she nails you. And you walk a little farther, and she nails you again. And you look around, and there's plenty of room to go around. You pull over to the side, she pulls over to the side. I asked her, I said, Did my mother call you and have you do this? Five times down the same aisle, she nailed me. I went to the next aisle, she's on the next aisle. I thought to myself, on the way home, that really irritated me. Now, I bet she's a nice, sweet old lady and a great grandmother, and she probably is one of the best cookies in the world and probably got a, I mean, she probably, but you know what? That was a very irritating thing for her to do. And the Lord says, you know what? That's just like your flesh, isn't it? Every time you stop, it jabs you. He says, Bob, you know what? He said, you know how you could have avoided that? And I said, No. He says, if you just kept on moving wouldn't have stopped, she never could have jabbed you. And I and I thought to myself, you know what, in my flesh, that's the deal. If you just don't stop and you keep on moving, it'll never get a chance to jab you. It's when we stop moving. It's when we stop growing. It's when we get out of the fight, out of the battle. It's when we take a day off from serving God and putting the word of God into our lives. It's when we take a holiday from walking with God. That's when the flesh raises its head. That's when you get it. That's when it's going to irritate you. That's when it's going to bother you. But you ought to hate it. And I'm telling you, the longer you serve God, the more you love Him, the more you're going to hate the other stuff pretty soon. You're just going to, you're going to be tired of it. And yes, sooner or later, you will turn around and smack the old lady. Your flesh. I mean, you know what? After a while, all fair and and war, Granny, bam! You know? I'm just kidding. I'd never do that. I'd never do that. But isn't that the way it goes with you and me? We try to get going good. You know how it works, don't you? You know how it works, don't you? I mean, you come home to the place where you're going to study your Bible. You leave Sunday morning, you're all fired up. God spoke to your heart. Or you come to Thursday night Bible, like the one we had last Thursday night when we get into those things like Christ. And I could see the movement and the stirring on your face. I can see the depth of your soul. God will ring some of your bells all the way down and just got you all the way down to your toes. And you go out of there with the best intentions. And you go home that night and you say, well, I'm going to spend some time in the Bible. And then something comes up, phone rings. You got to do this, got to do that. Then you say to yourself, well, I'll do it tomorrow. God will get up early in the morning. Then you sleep in. Then you're late. Then you say, well, I'll do it on my lunch hour. Then you got to do something else on your lunch hour you forgot to do. And you say, well, I'll get it done tonight. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to give God, carve out a couple hours for God. You know how it is. You walk in there, boy, and the TV's on, and you walk in there, and there it is, Monday night football. And you say, well, okay, God, I'll be with you in just a minute here. I go, 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 go. You know, I really forgot this game. I really want to see it. You know what? I'm just going to watch it five minutes. And two hours later, you know what? It's over with. You haven't got anywhere in the Word of God. And you know what? You'll tell yourself the next day you'll do the same thing, and tomorrow's got just as many excuses as the day before had that's our problem. That's our problem. You can't play with your flesh. You can't make a deal with it. You can't work an angle with it. All you can do is kill it. Kill it. Kill it. And that's just the way it goes. The difference between a saved man and a lost man. A lost man himself sins because of his flesh is stuck to his soul. But a saved man has been cut loose from his soul and his flesh, and that soul is sealed, First John chapter 3, verse 9, under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. So it is not him or you or me that does it, it's our flesh. And this is why I talked to you when we started this study about the greatest word in the Christian vocabulary for me, anyhow, is the word consistency. You're not going to make it every day, you're not going to do what's right every day. And there are going to be times you're going to fail. There's certainly times that I fail. You know what? So what? Stay consistent. God doesn't expect you to live a perfect life, but He does expect you to live a consistent life. He does expect you that when you fall down, you get up. He does expect you to quit blaming your problems on everybody else. He does expect you to grow up and be a man or be a woman and take responsibility for your own life and do what you got to do. You are in charge. Consistency is the name of the game. Taking the Word of God, applying it to our hearts and our lives, and then coming to the point where we understand the great concepts, the greatest battle we face. Yeah, we were alive without the law once, but when a commandment came, sin revived and I died. And now I struggle every day with my flesh, just like Paul did. You know what? Paul was the greatest Christian to ever lived, but if I'm sitting right here, I can think of four things that he did were the stupidest things a man could ever do in his life, and one of them cost the rest of his ministry. The greatest Christian that ever lived. You know why? Because he was just like you and me. He got himself in the way of God, just like you and I get ourselves in the way of God. That's why God allowed him to write it. I mean, we wouldn't have took much stock in it if he'd have picked, you know, Pilate to write it. But when he picked the greatest Christian that ever lived, you see, that's what I keep telling you. Everything in that Bible was by design. When he picked the greatest Christian that ever lived, to live by the standards and show us where he failed and his frustration with it, because he used his frustration to illustrate to us why we have our frustrations, Dr. Law. But Dr. Grace shows you how to fix it. It's a war of your mind. There's a battle today that rages throughout this world. Not the battle in Iraq, not the battle in Afghanistan, not the battle in the Middle East. Those those are battles. The battle today in Christianity is the battle for your mind. And you're either going to put God's mind in it or you're going to put somebody else's mind in it. But that's where the battle is. And your success deals with Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. The law revealing to you what the problem is and then Dr. Grace being able to fix that problem. Starts with salvation, and it works all the way through your life as you transform yourself to be like Christ every day of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.